0: Hello, listeners, to And Now the Hard Part. This is Rob Sachs. I'm the managing editor of FP Studios. And recently, we dropped in the premiere episode of Global Reboot, featuring an interview with John Kerry. Because of the overwhelming response to that drop, we're going to go ahead and give you the entire series of Global Reboot here in this feed. Look for the letters GR in front of each podcast. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy. From Foreign Policy Magazine, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. The outbreak of a mystery virus in China.
1: Officially hitting the US.
0: Characterized as a pandemic. We
1: can stop the spread
0: by staying at home and reducing contact. COVID-19 has changed life as we know it. It's exposed shortcomings not only in our public health systems, but also our social safety nets across the country are struggling to keep up as the number of coronavirus cases surges.
2: Shows a record-shattering 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. And while
0: it has shown just how quickly progress can be achieved
1: for the vaccine, the UK now the first country to approve a vaccine for the, the U.S. is breaking new records in its coronavirus vaccination.
0: It has shown how little has changed at all. There are concerns growing that the poorest nations may be missed
2: out or left to the very end of a very long queue.
0: We have two guests today. Dr. Hanan Abdulrahim is Dean of the College of Health and Sciences at Qatar University, and Dr. Ashish Chah is Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University. I started the conversation by asking Dr. Cha what lessons we learned from the past year.
2: You know, at the end of January, I was asked to give a talk on how did India beat COVID. So I gave one of the most unsatisfying, or let's say one of the least satisfying talks I've ever given in my life. I laid out the six main theories that people had for why India had beaten COVID.
0: Think it's because India's population is so young, half under 25.
2: And explained that none of those made any sense. Because
0: India only started inoculating its population last month after the decline started.
2: And therefore India could not have possibly beaten COVID. But I could not explain why it looked like India had beaten COVID. And I worried about where India was. And I'm sure the audience found that deeply dissatisfying, right? To have an expert come in and tell you that he doesn't know what the answer is. He just knows that the answers that are out there can't be right. And watching what has happened... Less than three months ago, India's prime minister declared victory over... Seeing the infection numbers starting to take off... The nation that houses 18% of the world's population. And then just the sheer denialism.
0: Controlled the coronavirus and saved the entire world. In fact, entire humanity from a major tragedy.
2: And then watching the denialism be turned into the horror show of just an enormous amount of suffering. So many people infected, so many people can't access health care. It's been heartbreaking to watch.
0: It really has. And it also goes to show how all we have is a moment in time, a snapshot of how things are going. And those things are all so fragile. Gains and advances made by countries are fragile. Things can easily turn around. Dr. Abdul Rahim, from where you sit, how are things going? How do you feel right now about the way in which the world has tackled COVID?
1: Well, it's been a long year and a half. And like you said, all we have are snapshots in time. So I think when we think about success stories and who has done well, I don't think that we have examples of countries that have done well from the very beginning until now. So some countries had things under control initially, and then with the variants and with people's fatigue, with public health precautions and so on, the situation reversed. And we've had other countries that didn't start off so well and then got better at it with time. So. I think right now is a very pivotal time, but I think with vaccines and the pace of vaccines picking up. President Biden announced the U.S. administered 20 million vaccine doses in just seven days. Not everywhere and not equally, unfortunately, but that's starting to give some people hope. And I think if we reflect back on who did a good job and on what countries uh, did well, I think we'd have to mostly be looking at uh, Asian countries and countries that had a history with SARS, with SARS-CoV-1 and with MERS. Uh, The experience with SARS and MERS enabled a lot of countries like Hong Kong and South Korea and Taiwan and so on to coordinate a government response very efficiently and to act very quickly. The health
0: minister says the Taiwan CDC has been preparing for this for years.
1: And that was really the name of the game at the beginning, is who could act very swiftly and to act very decisively. And also, I would remind you that they were among the first countries to start using masks, even at a time when the rest of the world was still not catching on to the use of masks. So those are countries that started off with a good experience. But like I said, no one had a great experience all along. There were setbacks along the way.
0: Dr. Cha, uh, just keeping in mind how tenuous progress is in any countries that we think are doing well in this moment of time, what's your sense of, given what we currently know and looking at the data over the past one year now, which countries do you think stand out as models for handling the pandemic as well as they could, given their resources?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And I'm going to largely agree with Dr. Abdul Rahim that a lot of the East Asian countries have done a, quite a good job. What's interesting is when you get away from the East Asian countries and, that, and Australia and New Zealand, even when you get to, for instance, the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark have done reasonably well. Germany, for much of the pandemic, a large, complicated nation, had managed things, it struggled more recently. But there are two points, I think. I mean, one hand, totally agree, snapshot, can't overread it, India got hubris. We don't want to make overstatements. But at the same time, it's not true that, that everybody's handled this equally badly. And I will say that what differentiates countries that have done better from ones that have done worse is the seriousness with which they have taken the public health challenge. And what's interesting for me has been watching South Korea's response, which looks kind of different than Japan's response, which looks pretty different from the Danish response or the New Zealand response, but all of them leading to relatively few infections and deaths uh, means that there are multiple paths to a good response, uh, reasonable success, but you got to take one of them and you got to do it well. And that requires good governance, it requires good leadership, it requires a whole set of things that we never used to think about when we talked about a nation's pandemic preparedness. You know, I'm struck by the fact that if we were having this conversation two years ago and you had asked me which countries are most prepared for a pandemic, I would have brought up the US and the UK as probably the top two. And I wouldn't have been the only fool who would have said that. Oh, there,
0: there are essays that have been written about exactly this pointing to those two countries.
2: Right, and they have done incredibly poorly. Um, because we overestimated the value of laboratory capacity and surveillance and, and doctors and nurses, as important as all of those are, and underestimated the importance of governance, leadership, social cohesion, messaging, all sorts of things that have turned out to be enormously important.
0: Since this is a show called Global Reboot, Dr. Abdul Abdulrahim, What lessons can we learn out of this pandemic? And by lessons, I mean, if you look at some rich countries that have done well, it's easy to say, well, they did well because they were rich or they have um, their ratio of hospital beds to the general population is very high. So the death rate is low. Um, So not that stuff. What lessons can we learn that are implementable across the board for countries rich and poor?
1: Right. So first, let me agree with Dr. Jaw by saying that it was surprising what happened in the United States.
2: The coronavirus is raging and on the move. It will go away. Just stay calm.
1: The on. United States has become the world's worst affected country.
2: We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China.
1: I mean, with the concentration of of technology and, you know, the foremost scientists in the world and so on, there was just a complete break between the science and policy, and that led to some very difficult outcomes. And on the other hand, we saw the power of leadership and very good communication in places like New Zealand and in Germany, especially at the beginning. So yes, those were elements of the response that were probably vastly underappreciated and underestimated. But, you know, what have we learned? I think we have learned a lot of lessons and I can reflect later on whether I think, you know, we're going to retain those lessons or not. But I think we learned the importance of investing in public health and in social care systems and having strong, resilient health care systems and in social care systems. I think we have learned that we are more interdependent and more connected to one another's outcomes and futures than we might be comfortable thinking about. It's the
0: evening ritual that doesn't show signs of stopping. Banging pots and pans, cheering and clapping as a sign of support for healthcare workers battling the coronavirus. Dr. Chan, knowing what we now know, what could the global public health community have done better and how has it fallen short?
2: Hmm. I mean, certainly one around communication. Uh, I think there have been areas where the science has brought us to certain places, and I don't know that has gotten communi- things have gotten communicated as effectively. I'm specifically thinking about things like, we probably figured out by last April, May, that this was largely an airborne disease, and you've seen real struggles with, within WHO, within the CDC, others, and then a lot of public health scientists clearly, effectively communicating that. That's really been a huge problem because if you can't explain to people how the disease is spread, it really has a profound effect on how much people can behave in ways that that keep the
1: pandemic under control.
2: Um, The other part is, I think public health people overestimated technical issues and underestimated sociological ones. Uh, We probably did spend a lot of time thinking about the right diagnostic tests, the right... And again, those are obviously enormously important, but didn't pay enough attention to people's willingness and ability to adhere to to social restrictions, uh, how you engage people, how you get people to change behavior. And yet, I think we as a broader community did not do a good enough job of both appreciating it and engaging in it. And it was easy in the United States, I'll tell you, it was easy to blame Donald Trump. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? Because, let's just be honest, he was a disaster. Uh, and so he became an easy target. But it, it was important for me to like look across the ocean and watch similar kinds of things happening in Germany with people saying, you know, and, and the UK. And in India in January, like, protesters burning masks. I'm like, what are you doing? So... This was a a kind of a broader public health failure that that we did not do a good enough job of of really engaging people and understanding the social restrictions were going to be very, very hard for people to follow for any extended period of time.
0: And we're now in a moment where so much of the response at this point, given that we've developed vaccines, which frankly is miraculous uh, at this timetable and at this level, um, but it's also beginning to highlight just how unequal The world is right now. So even with a fairly poor response to the pandemic in 2020, the UK and the US, which we were talking about earlier, now have managed to vaccinate a chunk of their populations and are beginning to come back to normal as societies. I'm sitting in New York City, I'm doubly vaccinated, very lucky. But looking around the world, it's going to take many countries a very long time to vaccinate majorities of their population. Dr. Abdul-Rahim, what's your sense of how the next few months will play out in terms of vaccine equity? And will we be seeing major backlashes from countries that are being ignored?
1: I think so. I mean, again, thinking about some of the lessons that we've learned in the pandemic. I know that public health people talk about inequities and disparities all the time. And I think the pandemic gave us a very, very vivid picture of what that looks like, both in terms of outcomes, well, being at risk of of the infection, the outcomes of the infection, and now the opportunity to access vaccines and so on. And there is resentment that is building up in many parts of the world, countries that seem to have an oversupply and countries that are now sitting on stocks of vaccines, whereas less than half percent of low-income countries have received vaccines so far. So the gap is absolutely enormous.
2: There are concerns growing that the poorest nations may be missed out or left to the very end of a very long queue the resources.
1: And that does build up resentment and that does kind of shake trust and it undermines the credibility of global collaboration for health.
0: If we can look beyond COVID-19, and I know that's very hard to do right now, but if we can look beyond the pandemic, what lessons has the world learned in the last year about global healthcare, Dr. Abdulrahim?
1: We've learned that security is not just a matter of borders and military security. Security is the security of people in their communities. Again, strong, resilient health systems and social care institutions. I think that's incredibly important. I hope that we don't lose our memory and the lessons learned now that we are starting somewhat to be in the recovery phase. I hope that we continue down the mitigation phase and the preparedness phase to work on what will help us prepare for the next
0: pandemic. Dr. Chai, I'm going to put the same question to you because it's an important one. What lessons has the world learned in the last year about global healthcare? And also, what lasting change will we see in our behavior?
2: Mm. They are fundamentally important questions, and I'm going to try to build on some of the points that Dr. Abdulrahim raised. The single biggest one for me is this pandemic has totally jumbled up the global order on who is a competent, effective government and country and who is not. I have been really impressed with the rise, for instance, of the Africa CDC and its role in helping the African continent. It was the first big challenge of the African CDC, and it has done extraordinarily well. Not perfect, but who's been perfect in this pandemic? But they have done way better than I think. Most of us had even hoped for. It also is a reminder that, you know, like America is gonna have a hard time setting the agenda for global health in a post-pandemic world where America's ability to do global health and manage its own pandemic was as severely restricted as it was. So I think there's some really interesting opportunities for rethinking the global health order. The American government walking away from WHO in the middle of the pandemic was somewhere between ridiculous and disastrous, more ridiculous in some ways than disastrous. So there's a lot of work to do in reconceptualizing this new global order. But I feel mostly optimistic that it leaves us in a much, much better place. It can leave us in a much better place for the next pandemic, which is almost surely coming.
0: I feel optimistic if you feel optimistic. That cheers me up a lot. Dr. Abdulrahim I wonder if you feel the same way, and I'm also curious, you know, looking back at the last few months and then looking ahead, what gives you hope?
1: I mean, I do have a mix of optimism and concern. Partly, I am reassured by the fact that some of the countries that did well, at least for part of the time, did well because they benefited from previous experience. And that's just witness to being able to build on past experience and to improve on it. The things that give me hope, first of all, is um, a rising interest in and appreciation of public health and the rising focus and interest on inequities and on disparities.
0: Dr. Cha, last question to you. You know, when I got my vaccine shot, the feelings i felt were relief and then also just a sense of this just being a miracle i mean it's it's a miraculous thing that we have developed vaccines so quickly uh, at least in the united states and been able to administer them to so many people so quickly i'm curious what impact the last year of advances in science will have not just for this pandemic, but for global health writ large?
2: Several. I mean, one is, you know, it's funny, I was uh, speaking to a news reporter who was being a little bit American, nationalistic kind of America first. And he said, well, why are we the Pfizer vaccine? It's a great American vaccine. Why are we giving it to others? And I started laughing and I said, it's a great American (laughs) vaccine developed by two Turkish immigrants to Germany Right. Uh, and then licensed to an American company based on data that was shared by a Chinese scientist about the makeup of the of the spike protein and ultimately really um, moved forward in a very impressive way by a German scientist. I mean, the point is that science has become global, has always been global. It has become much more so. But the scientific community is never going back to the old way of doing things. The idea that like nobody sees the science until it's published in a journal. No, everything is going to be open access and much more so. Science is going to move much, much faster. And it's going to be more collaborative, more global. And anybody who's not deeply global, deeply engaged in global science is just going to be left out. Nobody will ever make this claim about an American vaccine or American science again.
0: Well, yay science. And here's to more cooperation um, between scientists and policymakers. Dr. Abdulrahim, Dr. Chah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for
1: having thank us Thank you here.
0: very much. Thank you. Dr. Hanan Abdulrahim is the Dean of the College of Health and Sciences at Qatar University. And Dr. Ashish Chah is the Dean at Brown University School of Public Health. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Simone Perez. Next time on the podcast, how we should use technology to build stronger democracies, better informed constituencies, and empower changemakers
1: false information, propaganda, myths and disinformation has been around for millennia. But what we're talking about now is we no longer have a shared reality. Empowering people to deal with technology, that those are the kinds of initiatives that really inspire me and excite me about the future.
0: That's next week on Global Reboot.